Hello and welcome to Prejudice and Pride. I'm Claire Balding and I'll be taking you on a tour of some of the creative, dramatic and surprising histories of National Trust places. 2017 marks the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales. To celebrate the significance of this anniversary, the National Trust is opening up its creaking oak closet and exploring how lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and queer folk have helped to both shape and preserve the house the collections, the gardens and the landscapes in the Trust's care. I'm so pleased you're joining us for Prejudice and Pride. In this episode, it's time for women to take the leading role. Women have often been written out of history and LGBTQ women are no exception. In one way, they had more freedom than homosexual men because intimate relationships between women have never been against the law in the UK. This was in part down to the limited freedom and rights of women in the Victorian era, when the laws that criminalised homosexuality were written. Women had few rights as lawmakers, property owners or voters, meaning that their behaviour was thought to be less of a threat to the status quo. Women's same-sex relationships weren't illegal, but they were taboo, so women and their families often didn't record such affairs. It's a grim irony that historians still rely heavily upon police records for evidence of gay men consummating their relationships, while lesbians remain invisible. And yet, there are numerous examples throughout the National Trust of devoted companionships between women that stretch well beyond the boundaries of platonic friendship. But what evidence has been left behind, and how might it change the way we understand the history of those places? With me to discuss these questions is Dr Amy Tooth Murphy, an expert on the history of sexuality, and Nino Strachey, Head of Specialist Advice at the National Trust. Amy, Nino, welcome to both of you. And Amy, can I ask you, first of all, what was women's intimacy in the past? Well, it's a really big question. In terms of what intimacy means to everyday women, the idea of sex and sexuality might not necessarily be intertwined with emotional intimacy. And for some women, emotional intimacy meant women's friendships, which on the face of it to us look very passionate, very expressive, but which may not have been understood under the banner of physical intimacy. They may certainly have been, but those correlations wouldn't be as obvious as they might be to us today. So women's friendships were encouraged leading up to this point to be very emotional, to be very expressive. But in the period that we're talking about today, in the first half of the 20th century in particular, there's growing suspicion around what women's intimacy actually means and this link to sexuality starts to become a little bit insidious and quite threatening to the social order. Oh, I see. So it's sort of fine for a while for women to share a house, but as soon as there's any suspicion, let's say, that they might share a room and not need men at all in their lives, then it becomes a threat? That's right, and it's to do with a few things which are coming into alignment at that time, such as the suffrage movement increasing calls for women's emancipation, for women's equality and women's rights. And that's seen as very threatening to the social order, to patriarchal culture. And so before the 20th century, women's friendship is seen as a very healthy way for women to try out emotion, 
romantic love even with other women and that would be seen as quite celebrated especially for upper class and gentry women who would be very much encouraged to almost trial out romantic friendships with their female friends as a preparation for married life to test out it's a safe testing ground if you like for emotional love for romantic love and they were called romantic friendships but when we add into the mix increasingly masculine appearance of women and increasing medical discourse around what lesbianism might be and this galvanised movement for women's equality, what we actually then see is that when we put the whole picture together, it starts to become quite threatening. So And sort of revolutionary. Absolutely. Nina, you've been doing a lot of research in this area, haven't you? Yes, I'm doing a book at the moment called Rooms of Their Own, which looks at queer domesticity in the lives of the Trust Bloomsbury-related properties. How did women sort of free themselves from, from the domestic sphere? And what impact did that have on their professional lives and their intimate, creative relationships? Well, if we look at the three ladies living at Small High, they were independent professional women, probably from the first generation of women, people who were born in the 1870s, who were able to have independent careers. So you had Edie Craig, who was a theatre producer and designer. You have Christopher St. John, her partner, who had who's been, a woman but identifies as a woman but identifies as a man, who goes to Somerville College at Oxford. One of those early women who attended university was a journalist who wrote for Time and Tide, the feminist weekly paper, was a suffrage protester, set fire to a letterbox. Together they formed the Pioneer Players, a women's suffrage theatrical movement. And then the third member of their partnership, Tony Atwood, was an artist trained at the Slade, exhibiting in London, exhibiting the Royal Academy, and one of the few female war artists. So there you had women who were professionally and financially independent, could set up their own houses, pursue their own political agendas, uh, funded by the professions that they had signed up to, really strong independent women. And what have we got in the way of material culture that allows us to establish a lesbian network? Sounds so exciting. Uh, at Small Hyde, Sissinghurst and Monk's House. Yes, Monk's being the home of Virginia Woolf. Well, there's a lovely link between the three houses because in the 1930s, Vita Sackville West read her poem, The Land, on the stage at Small Highs in the theatre that the trio founded. And as usual, she wore her wonderful breeches and had a very admiring audience. And after that day, Vita invited Edie, Christopher and Tony over to Sissinghurst. And Christopher said when Vita was taking them around her bedroom that her heart dissolved as Vita was handling a piece of green velvet and forever she was in love with Vita. And at Sissinghurst, you can see the outpourings of that love which was obviously quite difficult for the trio to sustain because Christopher did beautiful calligraphy and she wrote all these poems for Vita which are displayed in her study and there's a little photograph of Christopher that was on Vita's desk and then when you go back to Small Hythe, you can see the painting that Tony Atwood did of Vita dressed as Portia, so as a woman dressed as a man, and the costume by Ellen Terry, Edie's mother, which Vita was wearing in that portrait. So you have this lovely links of physical objects recording that love and the impact of Vita on those three women. And actually just sort of connected yeah. to that, mm. it is a commonly held belief that Vita moved to Sissinghurst in 1932 mm. to live a solitary life. But that is not true. No, not at all, because fairly soon after she'd moved into the house, her sister-in-law, Gwen St. Aubin, had a serious car accident and came to Sissinghurst to recuperate. Didn't leave for 10 years. She left her husband and five children and she was going through an intense religious and emotional experience. And during that period, she and Vita fell in love. 
she moved into a room in the tower above Vita's writing room. So this myth of Vita being on her own in the tower is completely not true. She lived for 10 years with a much-loved partner who was the sister of her husband. And together they went everywhere. Do you both get the feeling that this is exciting because it allows us a chance to uncover stories that haven't been widely told? Amy? Absolutely. The history of lesbianism and lesbian sexuality is still very much underwritten. And so to uncover especially the domestic lives of people and to see their everyday intimacies is just the most compelling, the most compelling argument for this existence of women's sexuality, women's intimacy in this period, which we will simply never find from court records, from medical records. We will find discussions of pathology of lesbianism. You know, was it was it an illness, a disease? Was it something traumatic that happened in adolescence? All these reasons for why a woman might be a lesbian. But to actually then hear expressions of love between two women, to see the material objects that sum up these relationships is just the most fascinating and I think heartwarming experience, you know, to really see those women and the lives that they live together in these amazing venues as well. A lot of these stories are connected to the history of women's suffrage. Mm. And the National Trust are going to mark that next year. Absolutely, because it's been 100 years since some women were given the right to vote in the UK. And there'll be the opportunity, I think, to tell even more in depth the stories of the way that the role that some of the women we've talked about today have played in that campaign. It's just been fascinating to hear both of you and hopefully will inspire other people to dig a little deeper, actually, and to say, hang on, this is the history we have been given in our lessons at school and what we've read ever since. But is there a different story? Is there a story that hasn't been told? So thank you to Dr. Amy Tooth Murphy and to Nino Strachey. So what was life like in these places where women's intimacy was so important? As we've mentioned, tucked away in Kent is Small Hythe Place, an unassuming and very traditional cottage and barn. Yet it was home to some of the most extraordinary and unconventional queer women in Britain. EJ Scott has been finding out more. Small Hythe Place is a quintessentially English cottage. Climbing roses are in bloom against its Tudor half-timbered walls and nothing is quite straight. The hand-cut timbers and leaded windows are aslant and the walls up on the first floor typically lean out a little bit. Hythe means landing place, which refers to the time when the River Rother ran through Small Hythe Village. But this home still feels like a landing place. It's an absolute haven, surrounded by a cottage garden that's filled with roses and wildflower beds. It was actually the Victorian actor, Ellen Terry, who established the Rose Gardens here. She's well known as a Shakespearean actor and performed in leading roles at the Lyceum Theatre in London for over 20 years in the late 19th century. She lived here at Small Hythe for almost 30 years, from 1899, and author E.V. Lucas wrote of the house and garden, it was very like her, like her in its grace, like her in its independence and Englishness, like her in the sunshine that irradiated it and the gaiety of its young yellow wallflowers. Ellen Terry's life was full of colour and her vivacious spirit was passed on to her daughter Edith, or Edie as she was commonly known. And it's Edie's story we're here to explore as part of this Prejudice and Pride series. She was an accomplished theatre director, producer, actor and costumier who lived just up the road in Priest's house. Her life was intimately entwined with her two female lovers, painter Tony Atwood and dramatist Christopher St John. Both of them crossed the conventional gender boundaries of the day by adopting men's names and often wearing fashionable men's attire. 
the three lived in a menage a trois for almost 30 years, both in their relationships and in their shared production of progressive creative work. And they challenged all kinds of conventions surrounding intimacy, relationships and gender. It's certainly one of the most prominent lesbian networks associated with any National Trust place in the UK. I'm going to meet with Carla Danella, curator of an exhibition on their lives here at Small Hive. Khaled's the curator of the LGBT exhibition here at Small Hythe. We're going to talk about Edie and Chris and Tony and their relationship. Where are we off to now? Where are you taking me? We're first going to start right inside the Bourne Theatre here at Small Hythe. And what's it like in here? Let's have a little look. It's a very warm and cosy space with a thatched roof and wooden walls. And all the chairs laid out for the audience. Exactly. Famous actors from the past would have endowed a chair. You would have a John Gielgud chair, Peggy Ashcroft chair. So this is where they would have been sitting? Yes, they and their friends would have been sitting here. Vita Sackville-West, Virginia Woolf would have been sitting here. And John Gielgud, Peggy Ashcroft, uh, Dame Sybil Thorndike, they all would have performed on the stage. Edie, Tony and Chris lived together in an unconventional way. What was the nature of their relationship? They were in a loving relationship and they had a creative partnership that spanned most of their adult lives. In front of us, we've got a black and white photograph. It's probably from around 1904. In it, we can see very clearly Edie Craig holding hands with Christopher St John as they walk up the path by the barn to where we are now. I don't know about you, but they look very fond of each other to me. Do you think that that's the case? They certainly were very, very fond of each other. They lived together, you know, they got together in about 1899 and they lived together until Edie died in 1947. So that's you know, almost 50 years. And then, as you know, Edie brought Claire, known as Tony Atwood, into the relationship in about 1916. Why do you think she brought her along? I think it's because Chris, well, I'll call her Chris, uh, Christopher had a a very volatile personality, sometimes a violent temper, and I think she brought Tony along just to keep the peace, really. So the three of them were living together in a relationship here. Three of them were very intimate. Yes, absolutely. Their relationship, though, was also a creative, a highly productive relationship as well. Absolutely. And I would say that, you know, if the three of them were alive today that would be what they would consider the most important legacy of the relationship, was their immense productivity. Edie was a groundbreaking theatrical producer and director who directed uh, about or over 150 separate productions. Chris was a writer, wrote 25 plays, two novels, and Claire was a painter. Her paintings can be found at Tate Britain now, Chris would have been writing things here. Edie would have been doing the lighting plans, blocking plans. This was a hive of creative activity. Tony would have been painting, creating scenery. And so we've got this non-conventional lifestyle. How is it that we do have evidence of these people's relationship that has survived? We are so lucky here, actually. Part of it is because Chris was a writer and she documented much about the relationship. She wrote diaries. She wrote a love diary to Edie. Chris had a brief affair with Vita Sackville-West, and she documented that in a 60-page love journal that Vita called the horrifying document. Well, I am struck by that, the fact that this is an extensive queer circle 
quite extraordinary. Yeah, definitely. We're in the middle of the countryside here, but it was a very vibrant queer community. They wouldn't have thought about it as such, you know, especially when they first moved here in 1900. How do you think Edie and Chris and Tony would have identified? Edie, Chris and Tony would have identified as women, women who loved women. Until 1928, there really was no such thing as a lesbian identity. Why was this? It's because Radcliffe Hall's novel, The Well of Loneliness, was banned because it was seen as obscene. The impact was the huge amount of press coverage from the trial. And it was really, you know, the sensational trial of the year. There were many photographs of Radcliffe Hall in the papers and many quotes about the novel. It really brought the subject of the novel, which is lesbianism or sexual inversion, as it would have been referred to at the time, into the minds of the populace. What we call lesbians today were finally seeing themselves represented in the press. In Radcliffe Hall, they saw a woman in a beautifully cut suit with trimmed hair, a beautiful, striking woman who was talking about the way these other women were living their lives. Carla, thanks so much for your time. We heard Carla mention that Vita Sackville West visited here and she wrote about Priest's house, the cottage, just a short walk across the lawns where Edie, Chris and Tony lived together. Vita's descriptions create a vivid portrait of Priest's house and the three women who called it home. From Triptych by Vita Sackville West The folk of Romney Marsh are said to be like a race apart, something quite on their own. But certainly the three who had alighted on the slope above the water meadows and the willows need fear no competition from the idiosyncrasy of their neighbours. Come to Priest's house with me and make their acquaintance. A small figure in a white duck jacket and trousers, under a much too large Panama hat, potters vaguely. No, it is not a tea planter in a tropical outfit. It is Tony, officially Miss Clare Atwood, whose vagueness vanishes as she perceives us, for this is the most hospitable and welcoming house in the world. She opens her arms as overhead a window opens with a clatter. A head appears at the window. Arms wave wildly. There are cries of pleasure, cries also of, Wait! I'm coming down! Instantly, all is commotion. Edie is coming down. There are shouts of, Chris! Chris! There might even be a flurry of temper. Where is my stick? It's to enable Edie to progress more easily. Under the vine arbour, just coming into leaf, she extends herself on a chaise longue, jerks a multicoloured coverlet over her legs and settles down to talk. Look at her as she lies there, frail but so vigorous. She is an old woman, as years count, but the years do not count as we look at her bright white hair, whiter than the burnet roses at the front of her house, nor as we watch the energetic gestures of her hands. What colour she has about her! Colour of garments, the red smock, like the sail of a red-wing yacht, the blue scarf, the patchwork quilt, Colour of mind and memory. Her mind lively, her memory stocked as richly. A painter's palette, she is, lying there under her quilt with her party-coloured cat, George, 
tucked against her knees. A painter's palette? There is a painter here, too. Tony in her white ducks. This is a triptych, not a single portrait. On either side of Edie hang the panels representing Tony and Christopher. In any performance, costumes are, of course, essential. And there's some surviving rare pieces from Ellen Terry's stage career still here at Small Hythe. But costume became an important part of Edie's life too, both on and off stage. So let's go find out more. I'm meeting Veronica Isaac, dress historian. Veronica, tell me what you've got in front of you. Well, we're looking at a cycling suit that once belonged to Christopher St John. It's a Czech fabric, a lightweight wool. It's very good for cycling, a very practical material. But looking at this garment, it's a bit of a puzzle to date it. The silhouette of the bodice is very much like the shape you'd expect to see in the 1880s. But it's a bodice and a pair of trousers. And that would be incredibly early, even for cycling, to be wearing a pair of trousers. So it's quite a pioneering cycling suit. Women in trousers like this or a cycling suit of this kind would have been turned away from hotels, public buildings, even an appointment to the dentist. So at Small Hides, it's clearly a space where you feel safe to wear the garments that suit your personality or your identity. You can be a bit rebellious. And so what do you think this says about Chris's personality then? Well, this is actually a really practical version of the cycling suit. Most women who were even then being quite rebellious cycling at all, going cycling, were wearing skirts and a bodice as part of their cycling suit. And that was very impractical. It was very risky. The skirts got caught up in the wheels of the bicycles. But Chris is wearing trousers as part of her outfit because she's cycling all the time. And she knows that the best way to get around is in a pair of trousers and she's willing to do that and sort of take a risk in that way. Now, listen, we've got another example of some yeah. dress here. This is a smock, isn't yeah. it? Yes, it is. It's a very contrasting garment, much softer. It's made from a heavyweight cotton. And smocks originally would have been worn in the sort of late 18th and early 19th century by agricultural workers. They were a practical garment worn for work in the fields and then also smarter versions for sort of weddings and other ceremonies. But by the end of the 19th century, they've sort of been adopted by bohemians, by the sort of artists as a garment to wear for sort of painting, working in the garden and just being relaxed in a safe space. So it's a very interesting garment, this one, because we think it was worn by one of the women at Small High. You can see from the photographs, they're wearing smocks quite a lot of the time. And this potentially was worn by one of the women, Edie, Chris or Claire, and then passed on to the Barn Theatre Society, who used a lot of the garments from Ellen Terry and other members of the family for their theatre productions. It really says volumes about how Jess can still speak to us long after the person has gone. Most definitely. Now, listen, in this photograph, we've actually got a woman wearing a suit. Yes, which is very unusual. It wouldn't have been positively received in a mainstream space, but this is small height. This is a safe, feminine space. It's a, a photograph where everyone is female. We know Chris wore suits. It's not actually her wearing the suit in this picture, but this visitor obviously feels this is a space where they can adopt masculine dress and masculine identity, not necessarily in a confrontational way, but in a way that sort of is asking for equality. In Small Hyde, it's a creative space. These are women who are engaging with men on their own terms, on their own standing. 
And they're using dress to express that desire for equality and that sort of power level. It's not saying we want more power than you. It's saying we want to be considered equal with you. They're writing on the same level. They're performing the same spheres. While Small Hive is a private, intimate place, the women here are engaging in a bigger, wider world through their writing, through their painting, through their theatre costumes and their direction. And this suit sort of tells you what kind of world they're moving in in the public space, that sort of masculine world and the way these women are taking that on. Veronica, that's been so insightful. I love that we still have these artefacts and pieces of dress to tell us this history. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Not at all. I've really loved showing you some of the objects and sharing some of the stories they have to tell. Thank you for listening to Prejudice and Pride. To hear more in the series, search for Prejudice and Pride in your podcast app or do have a look at the National Trust website. <laughs>